0: The late Kirk Kaiser was an American contemporary church music composer and arranger. That's how Wikipedia titles him. I was just going to go with songwriter, but I imagine the longer title offers a little bit more heft uh, to it. There may be some here this morning uh, that are familiar with his music. You may not know the name of this particular composer, but you might be familiar with uh, songs. One of his uh, most popular, uh, it's kind of Christian songs you would sing in church, Pass It On. From the late 60s. You remember the song, Pass It On? I was listening to this on YouTube, and I said, if I blindfolded myself and didn't know anything about this song and just played it, I would have guessed the late 60s. It sounds like it's right from the era. Uh, You also might be familiar with his song, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. That's the one I was familiar with um, from the mid-70s. The lyrics of that latter song go something like this. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Just in case you missed it the first time. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. You heard that one before? I think a number of people have heard that. I'm not going to sing it. I heard last week, if you listen to the YouTube, you'll hear me singing at the beginning of the service because my mic was on. So if you want to hear me sing, just go to YouTube for last week's service. Jesus, of course, is the one who gave his life. And astounded by the supreme self-giving, we sing, What more could he give? That line forms both a declarative statement and a question. What more than one's own life could one person give? Jesus himself will note the significance of this particular expression, calling this ultimate self-giving act as the greatest kind of expression of love, and we see that in John chapter 15. But at the same time, and consistent with the character of the triune God, it's a fancy way we use for saying the Trinity, but consistent with the character of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ, more is actually given. More is given. And we hear that in today's gospel reading. We hear that more is given. But before we get to the more, let's talk about love. Who doesn't want to talk about love, right? Let's talk about love. That's how our text begins, of course, or at least how it locates itself. Words for those who love Jesus. John's gospel, of course, is rich with metaphors for the Jesus following community, whether that be a flock of sheep or his branches. Those who love Jesus is a good entry into those metaphors or into those expressions. But this is no mere feeling. So it's not just mere feelings and gushing over over Jesus. No, following the contemporary title, love does, if you're taking count here, that's the second reference to Bob Goff in three weeks. This is what it does according to Jesus. The one who loves Jesus keeps Jesus' commandments. When I wrote the subtitle to this section, this is the part you would not know. This is like pulling back the curtain when you can see the Wizard of Oz or something. But if you, if you pulled back the curtain here and could look at the page on which I'm, I'm writing here, I subtitled this section of the sermon, Love Commandments. Now, before you get too upset here, especially those of our freedom-loving, antinomian sentiment sorts, you might say that's a bold claim, Jimmy, to make love commandments some sort of statement here. But let me note here there's a comma between these, these two words here in the subtitle. And I've separated them, but they're not unrelated here. In fact, our reading is book-ended in verses 15 and 21 by this notion that those who love Jesus will keep his commandments. And this, of course, raises the question, what are these commandments we are to keep that are so closely aligned with loving Jesus? What are said commandments? Well, it might help here at this point uh, for us to note that our reading is not the first time that we read about a commandment in this particular gospel. If I was reading from Luke this morning, or maybe even Matthew, if I went to Matthew and I said commandments, uh, you might, first of all, say, of course, Matthew 28 has a little line there about teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And then you could go back and say, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount in different pieces, and maybe that's what we're getting at. Or if I looked at Luke, I'd say, oh, Luke chapter 10, you know, the, the Good Samaritan story. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Maybe that's the type of commandment. But here in John, we have the word commandment shows up uh, for us and actually really close into this context. One chapter earlier from our reading in John chapter 13, verse 34, 35, Jesus offers the words that have become associated with our commemoration of Maundy Thursday, which is aptly named since Maundy comes from Latin for command. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Loving one another is a a Jesus distinctive. It's a Jesus follower distinctive. So much so that Jesus will pick up this same expression uh, two chapters later and only one chapter after our current text in chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, where he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And we referenced that earlier in the sermon. Jesus addresses what we might call the Hathaway question here. And you might say, What is the Hathaway question? Well, it's simply this What is love? No Hadaway fans here? No? Couple? Okay. Night at the Roxbury? Okay. Everybody's like, What on earth just happened? Go to YouTube, type in Hathaway, type in what is love. You'll regret it. (laughs) But both of these aforementioned references fall in the chapters that bookend our present chapter. And that might be the more important thing for us to hear here. The effect, of course, is being that if we are going to imagine commandments, love frames our life together as Jesus followers. So we start there. We say, what commandment are we to keep? Start with love. And start with the way that it finds its expression amongst one another. We, of course, oftentimes try to perform all kinds of mental gymnastics. I know I do this to qualify how we might live and to justify our own shortcomings in this area. We might say, Well, in my heart, in my heart, there's love. There's love for them. But that outward expression finds, it finds some difficulty in there. But in the end, what Jesus is getting at here in this particular text, is something that we'll see and is quite consistent with what will be said later in 1 John chapter 4. Those who say, I love God and hate a brother or sister are liars. That's the text. That's not me saying that. That's the text. Those who say, I love God and hate brother or sister are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. That's how John pulls it out in in 1 John, how he reads this here. And that, of course, is a big gulp moment, or what I call a big gulp moment. Not in the sense of an oversized convenience store soft drink, all right? Not in that sense. But in the moment where we pause and dramatically swallow what we just heard. We are to keep Jesus' commands, of which loving one another is key, in Jesus' coming absence then, so he's preparing his disciples for that time when he will not be with them bodily, Jesus' followers are to commune with one another in a way that exemplifies how Jesus has loved us. We hear those other expressions for what love looks like. So how are we doing with that? And I think if we look at church history, or we look at our own history, we know that this can be a significant challenge for us, that we struggle We struggle mightily with this, and it not only in our church, but also in our families, in our communities, our neighborhoods, we struggle with this. It's not something that we got it right the first time and we just keep getting it right. It's something we always have to come back to. On a personal level, I found helpful this past week as I was reading through some different uh, folks who've written about this, uh, a particular diagnostic tool that Jamie Clark Stoles, who's a New Testament professor at the Perkins School of Theology, that she proposes that draws on Jesus' command here. And what she proposes is that at the end of each day that we just simply ask this question, in what ways did or did I not love today? What ways did I love or did not love today? Of course, tools like this can be a bit tricky at points, particularly when the answer that comes back is rather prickly uh, because we might have come up short. So then how do we make any headway? How then are we supposed to keep jesus's command if we keep messing it up how are we supposed to be those people that are described there well tuck between the admonitions to keep jesus commands i think is the answer we look at our text text right in there like a, a sandwich there um, john and i were talking earlier about processed meat this is the processed meat the deliciousness right here of course the question is a lingering one that these earliest jesus followers would be contending with how are we to continue when jesus is no longer bodily present with us sure that jesus sayings and stories could form interesting if not inspiring corpus uh, for us to go back to uh, read from time to time to find inspiration uh, for our day perhaps nostalgia even for those who were the earliest followers who knew jesus and, and and traveled with him but would there be any real substance to it if that was all there was would there be any staying power for it? Could such a movement even last? And you can you can feel left high and dry when the person you've been following for years now suddenly leaves the scene, and and particularly in the way that the passion narrative unfolds, and you're left there, you're left there with all these sayings and teachings and wondering, well, what do I do now? Jesus, of course, uses the apt description in verse 18 by referring to them as orphans. But he says in this way, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. What about the many who never traveled with Jesus? What about people in our own generation? How would this have any power and staying power for us? How would it have any substance for us who live here in the 21st century who did not know Jesus bodily? Well, there's an Easter provision, which is why this text shows up here during our Easter season. Remember that things were about to look real bleak in the days ahead. Jesus assures them that this doesn't mark the end. And he prepares them for a future when he will not be with them bodily. Instead, provision has been made for these early Jesus followers and for you and me today. And that's the answer to the question we asked at the outset. What more could he give? Look at verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. Of course, it's only... Uh, this, this identification of one who's advocate or a parakletos is not a common word in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used a few times, and it doesn't show up in the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament tra- or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But this identification is used here in John's Gospel, and it shows up four times in that Gospel, as well as one time in First John. Here's the here's the things that we learn about this advocate just here from John's Gospel. One, the advocate is given by the Father to those who love and obey Jesus. See that in verse 16. And it is by request that Jesus bestowed on Jesus' followers. And it comes after Jesus' glorification, after his death and resurrection and exaltation. We hear that in John 7, that promise that the Spirit would come then. The advocate would be sent in the context of Jesus' departure so that Jesus' followers would not be orphaned. We heard that in verse 18, replacing Jesus' physical presence doing for the disciples what Jesus had done for them before his departure. And that's confirmed as we look at the ministry parallels between this advocate and Jesus, the ministry that he he performed and held. The advocate would be with them forever. I think that's key for us to hear that. Would be with them forever. And then lastly, the advocate is described as the spirit of truth in verse 17. But also we see this description of Jesus who's described throughout the gospel as one who revealed truth and who also embodied the truth of God. Again, making that connection between the Spirit's ministry and Jesus' ministry. If you want to see what God is up to now, look at what God was up to in the ministry of Jesus and you'll get very, very close there. There's many, many parallels. Writing for the Gospel Coalition, Neil Chambers writes this about the Spirit says the experienced reality of believers the great gift of the new covenant the repeated testimony born throughout history in the lives of believers to the resurrection and exaltation of the crucified lord jesus for the christian's life is inexplicable and unlivable without the holy spirit we require it we require the spirit's presence like we need water to drink and food to eat in order to live Remember Paul's address to those Athenians in Acts 17, where Paul speaks of the closeness of God, the one who gives us life and breath and everything, in whom we live and move and have our being. And so he's referencing this presence of God post-Pentecost, that God is present even though they can't see it, even though they can't see that. Of course, Peter will say when he speaks of the same Spirit that we're made alive in the Spirit 1 Peter chapter 3. So, what's the benefit of this advocate? Gives us life, gives us presence, gives us a sense of the future. And this, of course, is the things that we learn as we look at the text, but it isn't everything that we discover. No, what more we see here is this. Of course, returning to those, oh, that opening song, Oh, how Jesus loves you and me. We might faithfully extend this in light of this gift. Of the Spirit in our lives to read, Oh, how the triune God loves you and me. Loves us so much that you and me are not orphaned, but instead are accompanied by the real presence of God's Spirit. The Advocate, who Colin Cruz will observe, is comforting the disciples after Jesus' departure, is teaching them, testifying on behalf of Jesus, convincing the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Guiding disciples into all truth and telling them about things to come. And Cruz will go on to observe. It is understandable then that parakletos has been variously translated as comforter, teacher, advocate, counselor, helper, and guide. Because it captures all those pieces. God's very own presence in your life today. The way that you can sense God, the reason you can sense God is because God is with you. And Jesus asking the Father to send this advocate is the reason we have that experience. This, of course, adds real substance to the Jesus story. For to go back, advocating for us here on the ground is the Spirit at work in our lives. Just as we hear this in 1 John, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We're advocated here on the ground. But we're advocated also in the heavenly throne room. The Spirit advocates for us, serves as the advocate here. Jesus advocated with the Father. How can we not see the love of God in that? That expression. That God indeed is for us. The human family who's seen back in Genesis is hiding and afraid of God. Hiding amidst the trees. Terrified and paralyzed. Paralyzed anticipating God's wrath, anticipating God's condemnation, hiding out. But in Jesus Christ, we have an advocate in that heavenly throne room and God's own spirit here present in our lives and amongst us, reminding us over and over and over again, God loves you. You are forgiven. You are marked as God's own. You are beloved. And cherished. So as you sit in your cubicle at work or you go to school and it seems like everything's stacked against you and you don't know what's going to happen next and you're wondering about the future and if things are going to look up for you, there's one thing you don't have to question. and That's God's love for you in Jesus Christ. That's been proven. That's been demonstrated on the cross. And the Spirit continues to remind us over and over again that God is for us. Craig, Craig Kester, who's a New Testament professor at Luther Seminary, identifies one of the uh, differences when we talk about uh, this love of God. He uses a metaphor to talk about coming, uh, coming to a relationship uh, with Christ. And it's an interesting metaphor that he draws on. He uses the metaphor of love to talk about this coming to faith. And here's what he writes. He says, coming to faith is analogous to falling in love. One cannot fall in love in the abstract. Love comes through an encounter with another person. The same is true of faith. If faith is a relationship with the living Christ and the living God who sent him, then faith can only come through an encounter with them. And the Spirit is the one who makes this presence known. I wanted to include that here this morning because I think sometimes our picture of the advocate or the Spirit tends to look more like the Star Wars force that's around us. I was watching some videos this past week of a, a person who has a healing ministry. And a lot of theatrics were involved in the videos that I saw. Um, a lot of waving of, uh, a, actually a suit coat was being waved and slapped on people and stuff. And that was that was representative of the Spirit being put on people. And it was kind of like this, this, if I do these different techniques and stuff, uh, that this is what the Spirit is up to. But for us to be once more reminded that in the ministry of Jesus, but also in God's work and ministry in the world today. That relationship is a key, key part of that. A personal relationship. We hear people talk about their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's an apt description. That's an appropriate description. It's not the only description, but it's an appropriate description. But to realize that the personal relationship that we have with God isn't just our relationship with God. It's God's desired relationship with us. That God wants to have you know that you are personally known by a God who loves you and so this morning if you hear and you hear these words and you say the advocate the counselor, the comforter the paraclete what, what are all these words this, this jumble of words what what does this word salad mean it's God loves you that God loves you and has done everything to ensure that you can have that relationship so the question I asked uh, this morning is comes from an old ad slogan from Gatorade How's that for a hard stop change, right? You remember, remember this ad slogans? And we know ad slogans are a major part of our cultural lexicon. Uh, there's lots of sort of things that we go to. I went to a conference one time where a guy was up there presenting, and he literally for an hour straight made his point using just hundreds of ad slogans. It was rough to listen to, I'll just tell you that. He made his point after five minutes, but it was rough to listen to. But we know that th- that's by design they, they're creating a lexicon for us advertisers are doing they're hoping that we'll remember these things and marketers of course create these memorable often pithy lines to link the hearers imagination our, our, as we hear these things with their product in so doing they awaken in us our appetite for something we didn't know that we were even hungry for and you're like no 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 i'm immune to these type of things uh, as you look down at your newest iphone um but we know that tech ga- latest tech gadgets Automobiles, candy bars, oftentimes joke about Apple. I hope they're not listening. Um, actually, I do hope they're listening, just not to this part. But oftentimes you watch the video for the new release of items, and you realize, man, my iPhone I bought last year is garbage. I need the new one. And it, it, it's just an endless cycle that goes with that. I remember back to Dr. Seuss who, who wrote in the Lorax, a thneed a find something that all people need. And they had this whole thing of thneed. And you're like, what's a thneed? And it's like, what do you want to be? It's something you need. It can be anything, but it's being marketed to you. When it comes to marketing, beverage brands are, are no different. And Gatorade, of course, as I mentioned, is not different. Product placement and labeling, yes, they play a role. Endorsements play a role as well. But slogans stick with us. And Gatorade's, is it in you? Late 90s and early 2000s, is it in you? Of course, that question, if you answered no, it's presumed that you are at a significant disadvantage right if you don't have Gatorade you're not going to perform at your peak but is it in you is a question that would have also resonated with the earliest christian communities because they would have understood that god's presence continued with them through the power of the spirit that even as jesus had left bodily from their midst the spirit was there amongst them and as we read through the book of acts we see that they're energized by that they're enlivened by that that there was a, a great part of power that came with that there's supernatural abilities that accompanied those early apostles as they're serving and ministry and they're witnessing things in those communities that they just couldn't explain and one of the things that was would be hard to explain you think about all the many miracles would be this how is it that thousands of people are coming to faith are turning their hearts and their minds and their attention to a crucified savior To this message of jesus how is it that they're turning their attention and their very lives to this one if there's not some kind of power amongst us moving here jesus would say i told you the advocate's coming the advocate's coming and we owe our very spiritual lives to the spirit's presence today so the question is is it in you do you have that kind of life Are you experiencing a life where faith has opened your eyes to a place where you can see God amongst you amidst the circumstances? Because even if you can't see that, God is there. God is with you. I saw this uh, line. It was printed on the wall of a, a church called Upper Room. It says, His presence transforming lives morning, noon, and night. Transforming lives power of the spirit is that your life can be transformed today and forever whatever we might imagine about different ministries or the ministry that we're engaged in we too are in a ministry that celebrates God's presence and transformation we're staking our claim on the very presence of God's spirit that's why John Knox Presbyterian Church exists because we believe the spirit's at work in this community and has called us to go and to serve It's real, it's substantial, significant, and it's important. So I close with a song, I'm not going to sing it, stop that right now, but there was a song we used to sing when I was growing up. I call it an activation song because oftentimes somebody would step up to the piano, Rachel please don't come forward, (laughs) and they would start playing this song and it was a cue that something was about to go down, that things were about to get real serious. And they would simply sing, Holy Spirit, thou art welcome in this place. And so I went out, I was like, I remember that, I can remember that like yesterday, from the stories of my childhood. So I went on to YouTube, nothing like living your childhood on YouTube. But I went on there and I started to listen to different versions of this song being sung in different decades with different groups. It's a powerful song. And I commend it to you this morning, not just as a song certainly welcome to sing it but to make that our prayer this morning that God has given us such a wonderful gift the giving of the advocate that God's very presence is with us now and forever for us to make it our prayer today and always Holy Spirit thou art welcome in this place Holy Spirit thou art welcome in this place And anywhere we find ourselves, whether we're walking the halls of work or walking down the rows of an airplane, and we're working. Holy Spirit, thou art welcome in this place. Because the Spirit's already there. Let me prepare ourselves that we make it a welcoming place for the Spirit in our lives. Maybe so for each one of us this day and all the days of our life and forever. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us, the provisions that were made. We oftentimes stop short in the story and we, we stop at the cross. Lord, we call, we're called to pause at the cross, knowing that the gifts that you have given us are so many. That the story continues on and on and on, but not only in the stories, but also in our very lives. And so, Lord, we offer ourselves to you once more. you would open our eyes and our hearts open our ears that we might see you at work amongst us today that we might see you at work in this community in this area that we might celebrate the transformation that's being experienced in lives and hearts lord we love you and as we hear your word this morning we cannot help but know that you love us so lord help us to keep your commandments we praise in jesus name amen